Hi there and welcome back to the ESPN Footy Podcast. Hello everybody, welcome to the ESPN Footy Podcast for another week. Proudly sponsored by Subway. Get your mid-match feast delivered fresh. Subway, eat fresh. I'm Matt Walsh, Jake Michaels and Christian Jolly are here with you once again. Jake, big round of footy, uh, long round of footy, um, but a heap of stories are coming out of this. It's almost hard to kind of know where to start because... It was stuff worth talking about that happened on Friday night, but it feels so long ago. Throughout the weekend, obviously, Anzac Day yesterday, by the time we're recording this, uh, it's just uh, it's all a bit overwhelming. Yeah, great uh, great weekend of footy, and um, I thoroughly enjoyed Anzac Day. The two games is great. You've you know, you got six hours or so of footy, and um, I really enjoyed the Essendon-Collingwood game. Thought it was great. Um, really good to see a huge crowd back at the G on Anzac Day, and yeah, good game. Came down to the wire. I think there's a bit of merit in having two games on, on Anzac Day, obviously a public holiday. Uh, the 12.30 start, I actually didn't mind, despite it being a little earlier than what people might be used to. But I think mm. that there's merit in a couple of clubs doing it. Maybe Hawthorne could make it a Launceston game annually. And there, is a bit of, there is a bit of Zach merit in that. I don't mind it at all. I reckon get three <laughs> games on the actual Anzac Day. And have one have one after the... And, do, and go head-to-head with the storm it. down here in the, Melbourne. Yeah, I think the NRL used to do that, didn't they? They used to have three. Well, they may still have three games on Anzac Day. Well, they had two yesterday, I think, about the same time. Oh, no, they they started later. So they had the 4 p.m. start and then the 7 p.m. start. So they they had the evening window. AFL took the uh, the afternoon. Gil and uh, Peter Volandi shook hands and said, this is how we'll divvy it up. Uh, (laughs) We'll move on from there. Uh, Christian Jolly for Champion Data. Uh, Big week, like I said. Uh, Plenty going on. What sort of – what do you take away from the Anzac weekend and – were you working on the weekend, especially during that, that Collingwood Essendon game? Just sort of your thoughts on the reverence of the day. Um, you know, obviously, massive crowd, biggest crowd I think they've had since the 2019 grand final. It's just kind of nice to kind of see footy regenerate into this point again. Yeah, again, I probably feel a little bit of the opposite to what you two are saying. I, I enjoyed the day. I mean, you, you ask about champion data within the four walls. It's just, it is just another round of footy. We're capturing the same data. Mm. But yesterday, I was actually, I worked on the Hawthorne Sydney game. Um, so I must say 12.30 start, tick. Hawthorne's jumper, tick. Loved yeah. it. Uh, but two games on Anzac Day cross for me. And, and that was because I missed out on Collingwood Essendon. I worked on the 12.30 game, finished about quarter past three, did the edits, sort of jumped, you know, did a little bit of work in the office, jumped in the car and got home and watched the second half. But I'm like, no, it, to me, it felt wrong. I, I'm, so, I'm, so, back to, I'm, a, I'm a Carlton supporter, but it's Collingwood at Essendon's day. They've made it their day. Yeah. They have one Anzac Day game. Love Anzac Eve, which I don't. Again, I don't think it should be called Anzac Eve, but I love the Richmond-Melbourne game the night before. Just, yeah, just felt a little bit, the sting was taken out of Collingwood-Essendon a little bit um, just by a game being played leading straight into it, not not a two-hour gap to sort of get home and be able to watch the, the last... Pop that, Hawks, Swans. So, again, yeah, just <laughs> listening to you two, I was probably a little bit in a different in a different basket. As I said, though, 12.30 footy, love it. I, lo- yeah, I love right. getting up and, you know, starting the day at then. And uh, if that was a Saturday, 12.30 to... 10.30, I'd love that. But yeah, so Anzac Day, uh, with kids, you probably enjoyed that as well. Yeah, yeah. Getting home early. Yeah, it's a good time. <laughs> um, before we get into something you noticed from round six, there's just there's, there's a lot happening. Um, so there's kind of there's a, a lot of things stuff I want, we noticed. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a few things I kind of want to rapid fire through um, that are worth touching on just before we do get into the main body of the podcast. Firstly, um, you know, Jake talking about that Swans-Hawks game. Mm. Paddy McCartan again, another bout of concussion, failed his concussion test. Um, he didn't look too... Uh, shaken up by it, but the decision for him not to play, we saw some pretty horrific scenes in the in the Swans uh, in the Swans rooms when he he was told that he wouldn't be going out on the field. Obviously, yep. he misses next week. Um, it's just going to be an issue for for the rest of his career, however long that is. Well, it is, and I think he would have known that deep down. And the doctors and everyone 
uh, and everyone around him would have been warning that this was going to happen when he did come back and play again. So I don't think it's come as a shock, but obviously it is disappointing and sad news. And look, who knows? We'll have to wait and see what, what happens in the future with him. But yeah, it's a shame that some players have, um, you know, it's cut short a lot of careers, concussion. And you can yep. see how, how you know, it was at the forefront of his brother's mind. The, the first collision that they had, Tom just stopped in the middle of the play and went, you know, straight to Paddy to check on him and sort of put his hand and called the trainer over and then sort of looked around and went, oh, yeah, now we'll go get the ball. So it was sort of like as soon as he saw his brother just cop a tiny little knock in the head, um, you, you could already see the panic sort of starting to set in. Mm, all the best for his recovery. Uh, there was obviously Brad Scott came out throughout the week and, and, and doubled down on umpire descent and saying that umpires would punish it. But... We kind of saw a bit of common sense, I think, guys. Um, yeah. There was 150, I think, paid for, for the Saints throughout the weekend. <laughs> it was actually a pretty bad one, too. I think poor old Dan McKenzie from the Saints uh, was just trying to signify to one of the umpires that a ball had hit the ground and, and shouldn't have been paid a mark, and, and he got dragged back to the inside 50, and, and I think the Giants were able to convert. Um, I think it was common sense for the umpires. I think there's there's a clear line between dissent and and being demonstrative and just sort of throwing your arms out. I, mean, I know we do this podcast. There's limbs flying everywhere when we get onto a onto on certain subjects. And I think the umpires, despite what Brad Scott said, would be a crackdown. Uh, handled it pretty well. Yeah, I think so. Um, that that was the only one throughout the round I really thought was the wrong decision. Um, but everything else, and I think the players too are quickly learning and adapting. And you know, you see them about to blow up the second a call goes against them. And then they do kind of tone it down. I think Sean Darcy had one that I think everyone yeah, yeah. was it's, laughing it's, at. It's, <laughs> and tag, tagging out the man, seeing, seeing the man on the mark about to blow. And I think it was Sean Darcy and another Freo player ran up quickly and said, I'll take the mark. You just run. You go yeah. somewhere else. Like, get out of here. <laughs> so I think they will learn, like, like anything in footy and sport. And, you know, we talk about it all the time with coaching and how coaches change uh, based on the new rules that get brought in. Same thing with this. Players are going to adapt pretty quickly. I'd be mm. surprised by, by round 12. I'd be surprised if we're getting, you know, one of these a week. Yeah. Uh, I think arms out was a mistake a couple of rounds ago. And I think it was a mistake to kind of double down on that. And, and, and every player sees it. Yeah. Every player is reading the news and seeing what's happening. The clubs are telling, they all are aware of this. It's not, it's not new anymore. It's another, all, they're all fully aware with what's happening. Another nugget from that game. Uh, Matt Flynn had a pretty good game for the Giants. The big man kicked a couple of goals, kicked a couple of really kicked good a goals. Couple Dead straight goals. Yeah, really nice kicking action, really fluid. Had the chance to put them back within about a goal with a couple of minutes left. Uh, took a good mark from about 20 out, slight angle, nothing too uh, crazy. And um, just had one of the biggest brain fades I think we've ever seen. Tried to handball it to uh, old Harry Himmelberg who didn't have enough space. Um, there were about three of his Giants teammates near him. Nearly took, I think it was Cornelio's head off at one point. Uh, and the snap went nowhere near the goals, well, and, and the ran out easy winners. Yeah, I don't agree that he had a brain fade. I don't. I want to know what the hell Himmelberg's doing, calling for the ball in that situation. But why are you handballing it off if you're twenty out? Yeah, but you, you well, he shouldn't have hand. I'm not. Yeah, I, I agree. He shouldn't yeah. have handballed it off. But why is a, his teammate calling for it? His more experienced teammate calling for it, a forward who's out of form, desperate to get a cheap goal. Yeah, and he's under pressure and misses. You know. Th- we see it happen a lot. There was one on Anzac Day with Jake Stringer calling for a ball 50 out on the boundary and he gets the hand pass and he the, he can't even get the ball drop because he's already under so much pre- pressure instantly. I don't understand. And just going back to Himmelberg, he's just having, having an absolute shocker at the moment. And I think that was one of the worst games I can re- remember for a key forward. Gave away a lot of free kicks, did a lot of silly things, a lot of boneheaded moves and mistakes. Um and that just capped it off. That was the icing on what was a pretty shitty cake. 
So <laughs> well, um, to be fair, Jake, we can't actually say that it's just Himmelberg at the Giants. They're all having a pretty average. No, they are, but uh, but again, you know, he's a he's a he's a relatively experienced player. Um, you know, they they're relying on him to be able to lead their forward line now. Um, and I know he's kicked about I think he's kicked twelve goals or so for the year, but just not getting involved enough. Fair going enough. long periods of time where you don't see him. So, and, and that again, why call for the ball, especially when I can understand if, if Flynn was completely out of sorts or something, but he, as you said, he kicked two pretty much from the exact same spot. Just not needed. Fair enough. Uh, moving on to one of footy's best conspiracies, I reckon. Uh, it turns out the Mackay brothers who haven't played each other in seven years in the league uh, were touted to play next week. Harry got a bit of a knock against the Dockers. Uh, and it looked unlikely for a little bit, but uh, his coach then said he was going to be okay. But then it's come out now that Ben from North is going to be suspended for a week. Christian, I don't know if Champion Data tracks footy's best conspiracies, but surely that is a runaway number one. Oh, well, that was the, <laughs> thing the same player. That was the thing I noticed this week. So you stole <laughs> that one. But yeah, it, it's again, it's just a quirky one. I think I looked at Harry McKay. Obviously, played more career games than Ben. He's played against every team, every other team besides North at least three times. Uh, seven games against Gold Coast, seven career games against I think Bulldogs in that time as well. Uh, he's only played against North Melbourne once, uh, which Ben didn't play. That was 20, 2019. I think Ben's played against Carlton three times, which Harry's missed each of them. So yet to see those two line up on each other across uh, what is it four or five years now of being in the comp. Uh, not a bad one, is it? Uh, speaking of quirks, uh, esteemed colleague, Jared Barker, who's going to be doing some deep dive work this week on the website, uh, Jake, had a really good one about Anzac Day and some of the winning streaks that have been happening in recent years. Uh, since 2005, it's, it's followed a pretty similar pattern, would you believe, um, who's won this? So it's gone Don's Pies, 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 Don's Pies, 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 Don's Pies, 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 Don's Pies, Pies, and then it wasn't played in 2020 because of COVID. And then Don's and then the Pies won most recently uh, on Monday. So, that's almost uh, too, that's, too much of a coincidence, I, isn't I think it? it's a bit like the Mackay thing. I mean, it's just it's a coincidence. Oh, you're not a big believer in this. I'm not. Stuff, I don't you? believe in that. There's no such thing as, I don't know. I don't buy into that at all. No, well, it's not a bad, bad stat anyway. From, no, it's, uh, it's a good one. JB. Well done, JB. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> jumper clashes. Uh, there was one in the NRL that was really, really horrendous yesterday. Um, I think the Georgia Illawarra Dragons were the home team. They were wearing their white, uh, with their white shorts and their white socks and they had a big red V on. Uh, and the Sydney Roosters were wearing their white shorts with their white socks and a very, very pale blue top with a red V on it as well. Yeah, and I, I, looked, I looked at that and I thought, there's no way that could happen in the AFL. But then I thought just on Saturday, it happened. Because North Melbourne, North Melbourne and Geelong. Yeah. Every year, these teams seem to have a bit of an issue uh, and the cats wore their, their clash jumper. And I'm pretty sure it's the only game of the, of the year they wear it for as well. Uh, but it was blinding light in Hobart to be fair. Uh, mm. and, and at times it was very hard to tell the teams apart. And, and for some reason or another that was ticked off and that was allowed to happen. Yeah. Um, we, we, you know, we reckon once every four or five weeks, we talk about a, a jumper clash. I, I'd love to actually know how, what actually goes on behind the scenes to, to get them checked off? Mm. Well, did, nothing did, happened last year for Anzac Day. Yeah. Do, do they have to send the, do they have to send how far in advance do they send it? You know, we were talking about, I remember we were talking at the prison bars last year with, with Port. <laughs> yeah. So we might have to do a bit of investigation here. Maybe. Well, when, when you come up with uh, something for the hundredth episode that we've apparently had three times already <laughs> uh, and do some investigating there, I'll, I'll back you to do some investigating <laughs> on the jumper clashes. <laughs> Uh, and before we before we get into the main body as well, uh, Jack Ginevan, obviously, speaking of, of the Pies and the Bombers, five goals, 
Uh, won the Anzac Day medal as well. He did. Probably one of the best personalities in footy at the moment. Uh, one of the best or one of the worst? No, nah, he's pretty good. I don't mind him. He's he's um, he's he's different. He's good. He really plays into his that sort of character. And I think I think what happened with Kane Corns earlier in the year sort of gave him a bit more of a platform and got people sort of on his side more so, given yep. Kane Corns' sort of polarizing nature. And um, yeah, I th- look, he played really well, deserved it in the end with five goals and his side winning. Um, don't know if he's reached Toby Green levels yet, though. It's funny, though, because all these, you talk about personalities in footy, they've all got something in, in common guys and it seems to be that they're small forwards mm. tom papley bit of a pest charlie cameron papley. does the motorbike sings along at games like he, he's a real character as well there's some great personalities in footy but they all seem to be these small forwards yeah and i've always i've i've always had a theory um i'm not a huge cricket fan but i've always heard growing up um fast bowlers always wide a little bit differently to the rest of the yeah. team and you have to have a certain personality to be a fast bowler not you know i know I know Glenn McGrath was a pace bowler, but it's the guys that are the top speed pace bowlers, the fast bowlers that are sort of wide a little bit differently. I see it with small forwards as well. I feel like you've got to have a certain sort of shtick about you, if that's the word. And I go back to Lindsay Thomas and blokes <laughs> like that, the guys that Stevie sort of knew how to, yeah, knew how to get under the under the opposition skin. Um, Stevie you know, Johnson. And yeah, exactly. I think, yeah, Stevie Mill, Stephen Johnson were probably the two. Um, superstars at it you know most kicked about mm. four or five hundred goals while getting under the opposition skin uh, opposition skin as well so yeah small forwards for me I, I i enjoy them i was a small forward as a kid too but i i do i just always think uh you can see them as a kid the small forwards that are going to make it are the ones that got a little bit of spunk about them in the even in the under 18s level you, you never see a key defense you never see jacob weedering you never see alex keith or harris the, Andrews on, the only one carrying is- on like a pork chop the only one's James Sicily, who who doesn't mind giving a little bit of lip and a little bit can be a little showboating. Was a forward time. at the start of his career. Exactly, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, so uh, he's the only, he's the only one I can think of. I'm sure there are others, but yeah, there's it's certainly ninety percent of them do sort of fit into the champion data's general forward category. I would have thought. <laughs> um, you did mention Jake as well. You thought it would be a bit strange if you started getting you know NFL style defenders you know doing a big spoil on the line and then oh, could you, know, you imagine to the camera could you imagine like. uh, well we saw uh, Jack Higgins he's another one Jack we saw <laughs> yeah. Jack Higgins give the old flex and the the, the scream imagine that imagine Jacob Weedering spoiling a ball over Tom Hawkins and then flexing over him I mean we would be just abusing him for weeks we're not <laughs> we're not evolved enough as a footy society unfortunately to <laughs> to take that all right finally uh something we noticed from the weekend I know we've touched on a few things here uh something that took your interest Jake from the weekend that we can uh roll into the main body of the podcast well speaking of Tom Hawkins uh him he and uh forward line partner Jeremy Cameron have now kicked 39 goals for the year and they're one and two in the Coleman which in itself is quite remarkable I can't remember the last time this far into the season that two players from the same team have been one and two in the Coleman race but I was just one I was curious to know how many of their how many of Geelong's goals have they kicked they've they've actually kicked 46 percent of Geelong's goals this season that seems like an extraordinarily high number yeah it does yeah 46 percent is actually quite high when you think about like the spread of goal kickers, two blokes out of you know six, maybe eight rotations. Then if they, kick the, going if they go and kick the first two goals uh, next week, that that's pretty much bang on fifty at, at that point. And it's like this is getting to the point where it's is it too reliant 
Because do you look at it and say, well, they got the two two of the best sort of three or four key forwards in the game? Good luck to them. Or mm. do you say they're too reliant on them? And if one gets injured, or you can lock down on one, they're in a bit of strife. Yeah, I think it's a good part. I don't know the answer to that either because at the moment it's probably too early to tell. But I think it's a problem we saw coming. And we go back to even ESPN. We did our preseason predictions, and I tipped Tom Hawkins, and I think you tipped uh, Jeremy Cameron Matt to win the common medal. So we saw both of them being focal points. Um, so yeah, sort of the only other combination that's as higher for percentage of goals in the games they've played is King and Jack Higgins, who have kicked forty eight percent of St Kilda's goals in the games they've played. So Jack Higgins missed a game. Yeah, um, fundamentally different players. Yeah, so they're sort of slightly different. And that's what I look at Geelong. I sort of said, well, it's probably not a problem if you've got those two guys kicking bags. It's are you getting contributions from anywhere else? And I think that's why I'd actually forgotten, but Tyson Stengel's over at, you know, one, one and a half goals per game this year. So he stepped up. He's been pretty good. Fred Close can hit the scoreboard, but it is. It was, if you had a looked at last year and said, okay, we're going to take Dalhouse and Myers out of Geelong's forward line. You're going to only have Tom Hawkins and Cameron kick all your goals. You're going to think, well, they're going to be a bit too reliant on those two. So, it so is, long as they kick five each every support, week, it's not so a problem. But if you got a, if you got two focal points and kick fifty goals for you, surely it's not a problem. Uh, and I think just just from the eye test, and maybe the stats do back this up, but I think Cameron's getting a few more goals in general play as well. I noticed that he's roving packs. Um, he's he's pretty good around ground level. I think um, that's always the been the the real tick, the real positive with Cameron as a key forward is he is just as damaging at ground level as he is on the lead and mm. and you know set shot. I think he is. He, to me, he looks a bit more comfortable on the run than he mm. does from a set shot anyway. So, yeah, it's always a good part of his game. Christian, uh, I did steal you or something you noticed, but anything else you got up your sleeve or shall I move on to myself? <laughs> uh, again, we'll probably get into it in the body of the pod, but I will say, uh, yeah, tease we'll, we'll tease it. Yeah, 30 shots at goal is what, what you want to have. 30 shots at goal. Well, there are a few few teams well, that 30, have that. 30 misses? <laughs> a, Mel- a Melbourne-ish game? But oh, they yeah, won. Yeah. yeah. Stay tuned and find out. Keep listening. Uh, something I noticed, um, look, big weekend of footy, uh, a great weekend of footy, good weekend of remembrance and contemplation for things that went over, uh, the, the things that have happened over the past, you know, many years, 100 years, 100 plus years. Uh, but one thing I did notice was there was a lot of love around uh, this round. I don't know if you guys noticed, but on Friday night, there was the Tom Green fan club in Canberra, of course. Did see that. Grew up in Canberra and he had his own little marquee there at the back on the, on the forward flank. Uh, I'm assuming filled with all his family and friends, but I thought that was pretty cool to kind of have. You don't kind of get that at the MCG or at Marvel Stadium. You only do get it at these kind of regional outposts, you could say. You better not call Canberra regional. <laughs> it's it's uh, it's in the regions, the greater the greater west. It's if a region of the world, <laughs> it certainly is. The other one though, guys, was uh, in in Hobart, and I'm sure these boys were happy that the game was scheduled for when it was and not right in the middle of winter. Um, but Ollie Dempsey, the fan club that he had up in Hobart, had his mates there and they'd all painted I heart Dempsey on their chests and weren't wearing shirts. And I thought that's a really brave move, uh, especially to be doing that down in Tasmania. Yeah, I had to jump in quickly to look at it too. I'm like, I didn't realise Ollie Dempsey was from Tasmania. And I looked it up and I'm like, no, he wasn't. He was from Cary Grammar, which I thought he was. So they've actually made the trip down there to support him. But they're not just locals that have rocked up. They've uh, gone all the way down there to do that. So his mates have got, they've obviously got the, the word that he's going to be debuting and have thought, yeah, we'll just jump on the plane. We'll go down to Hobart, check out Salamanca Markets in the... Uh, in the morning and then head over to the, the footy in the afternoon. And, and they had a good guy. They had a good day because I thought he was actually pretty impressive on debut as well. Kicked a goal, got to celebrate with him. Um, but yeah, geez, if it had been a, a six degree day or, or God forbid an evening match down there at Hobart at Bellarive, when the, the wind whips across the ground, that would not have been a comfortable <laughs> night. That's for sure. 
Let's get into the main body of the podcast. Uh, we did tease it a little bit earlier, but uh, Jack Ginevan, one of the, the more interesting and polarizing small forwards that we've got at the moment. But I thought we'd play a little game of let's overreact to, because I reckon we did this last year or might've been the year before Jake, where we were talking about small forwards, general forwards and their impact on games and how it looks like they're having, you know, more impact than they have in previous seasons. Um, so I thought we'd overreact to this because it seems like it's happening again. We had Jack Higgins kick a bag, Gideon kicked a few, um, Zach Bailey kicked six. Heaney's been good this year. Fritch, you know, Charlie Cameron, Bruce, Dylan Moore's looking good. Josh Rochelle. Christian, are we overreacting to the impact that small and general forwards are having so far this season? I don't know. It's sort of yeah, a tough question to answer. I think if you're saying it's the best ever, yes, you're overreacting to say that it's any it's any better than uh, than previous years. But again, we you got to appreciate what we have, and I think we're flushed. And we were just talking about it then in terms of Tom Hawkins and Jeremy Cameron. You really need the small forwards. We're not just seeing you know change from a few years ago where midfields were just getting shoved in the forward pocket and maybe you get a couple of goals here and there. We're getting Josh Rochelle being drafted top five pick as a general forward of the competition. Um, and, you know, similar uh, players along those lines are Cody Waitman. I know he wasn't as high as I think a top 20 or 25 pick, but again, they would have drafted him knowing he's going to play his hundred percent of his career as a small forward with us. So I think we're blessed in terms of the position is definitely becoming um, uh, more of a signature position. And we're seeing a lot more teams, you know, use it uh, permanently rather than just shoving midfielders there. But again, sort of looking at the numbers and the stats to be above average as a general forward this year, you need to average, I think one goal per game. Uh, I think back in 2019 to be above average for a general forward, you needed to be 1.1 goals per game Mm -hmm. and slightly more rating points per game than we're seeing this year. So again, the above average guys three years ago or two years ago were uh, averaging higher numbers than what we're seeing this year. But we're also um, seeing scores are down compared to previous years as well. So it is harder to score. So it makes sense that I guess that benchmark has been lowered. Yeah, a little bit. And again, you look at pressure numbers and it, there's so many other parts of a small forwards game. And again, another shout out for Jared. Uh, Jared Barker will be doing a um, his deep dive this week for ESPN on the general forwards. And he'll be looking at uh, things like who's the, who's the highest rated general forward, but also just looking at the different different categories that you want your general forwards to be. And so again, you know, we look at the number one stat is disposal. So who, what general forwards are winning the most of the ball and sort of ran that query this morning and thought I had a uh, sort of error in the numbers when Stephen Canelio came up with 23 disposals per game. And I thought, gee, surely he's more of a, again, classifying our positions. We have a general forward, which is at least 60% or more as a forward. And then we have mid forward, which is where you're under 60% as a forward and spend time there as well as the midfield. So I thought Cornelio was going to fall into the mid-forward category. I actually looked at it. The last, this whole season, he's been 68% as a forward because the last three weeks, they've actually used him as a general forward 85% of the time. So you talk about, you know, uh, you know what I just said about putting midfielders as small forwards and sort of rotating him through. I think GWS have actually identified, all right, Cornelio is a scoreboard hitting midfielder. When he plays in the midfield, he can go forward and hit the scoreboard. But he's actually struggled a little bit in the midfield. They're, they're bringing in Callahan and a few other guys. They've actually moved him forward and it hasn't impacted his number. He's still getting the ball 20 times. He's still getting his six tackles per game. He's had a few more score involvements and score assists in recent weeks. So again, he's at the moment, the number one ball winning general forward. Um, and again, we update our positions weekly. He would have only been a general forward, I think starting in round at the end of round four. So he's sort of new to the position, but again, probably an underrated positional move that GWS have made this year um, to get Cornelio back in form. Uh, but yeah, 
the, I was going to say the name that, that that stood out to me when we were talking about this before the podcast, um, and he had a he had a great game on the weekend, kicked six goals was Zach Bailey. And I said, where does sort of he fall in that that general forward realm? And you said that he doesn't fall in that general forward realm. Yeah, again because of the time he spends on the wing, so I think he's down below fifty percent as a forward. So he's definitely an attacking midfielder. Uh, but we, when you're comparing him to guys that are actually lining up, starting in, you know, as a six-six-six theory, starting inside the forward fifty is one of the six forwards. Um, yeah, he's not as high up in that sort of timing position as the others that we're classifying here. So, uh, in, in in numbers terms, it's fair to say that small and general forwards are not having a greater impact than any other year picked out at random in the last, you know, sort of five or six. Uh, well, definitely over the last two years, so 2020 and 2021. They're having more impact, but again, I only have to go back to 2019 to find small forwards having more of an impact across the season. Uh, and I think 2018 was slightly higher than this season as well. So, um, again, sort of talking about the best general forward, though, I also found Isaac Heaney um, currently is the number one rated, using player ratings, number one rated general forward in the competition. And just his average, he's averaging two and a half goals and 6.2 tackles per game. Uh, I ran that through as a query just to see who's averaged two goals per game and at least five, two goals and five tackles per game. So he's at 6.2, as I said, for tackles. It's only happened one time uh, in the history of AFL, and that was Cyril Rioli, I think 2016 or 17 off the top of my head, who had, um, I think, yeah, just over six tackles per game and 2.2 goals or something. So, yeah, the, the, what Isaac Heaney's doing is almost, you know, one of the best performances by a general forward we've seen in a few years. Um and again, behind him, very, very surprising, sort of not surprising, I think he's got under the radar, is Luke Bruce is still the second highest rated general forward. He's still averaging 14 rating points per game this year, 2.4 goals per game, two score assists. So I think he's just been a constant Luke Bruce. He's probably been a top five general forward for the last 10 years straight and probably doesn't get enough credit that he, des- that he deserves. He definitely doesn't. Um, well, we were having this discussion on the weekend, Joe. If Luke Bruce retired today, is he a top 10 small forward of all time? Yes, yeah. I think yes. is the answer. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, but you're right. Like it, it almost, you go through like premiership teams as well and there are always these, the big names that stand out, you know, Luke Hodge, Franklin going back, you know, 2008, um, Sam Mitchell having good times there at the Hawks. There was always, you know, Stuart Dew having having that that game that he had in NL eight mm-hmm. as well. They're always going to be like well, Cyril. We just uh, Cyril. I've just mentioned his name as well. Yeah, they're going to be like. But who? Just all right. So look at enticing stories. Yeah. So Cyril or or Bruce? Like which career is a better career? I think it's Bruce. What's it's been I longer? Think Cyril's be ceiling was probably higher, and what he did, like his his absolute peak was. Maybe maybe a touch better, but I think what Bruce has done for such a long period of time, yeah, and yet right now you, you ask the average footy fan on the street, name the three best sort of smaller forwards in the league. Ninety five percent of them are leaving him out every time. Yeah, that's a good point. He never gets. He never gets. I don't know how many times he's been all Australian. Maybe once or twice. Um, he never really. I don't think he's ever got the credit he deserves. We we spoke about David Mundy on here last week or the week before. And I think he's been underrated too. For, for But I think the last year or two, he's starting to get a lot of the, oh, you know, how good's Monday? You know, he's a, a star. But it's just like, you know, no one's still just Bruce kicks goals and does it every week. And it just it's almost like we just take him for granted because he's just been doing it for so long. Uh, any other nuggets on uh, small and general forwards, Christian? No, so we've got, again, just wanted to ask Jake, third rated general forward uh, for player rating points, Sam Sutkowski. 
Did you finally get to watch Sam him on the weekend? Did you, did, you, did you come around to champion data thinking that this guy might actually know how to play footy? <laughs> well, you said you you said you'd win by the Dockers would win by ten goals. You weren't far off in the end. Ten scoring um, shots. Yeah, yeah. Carlton had look, ten free scoring shots, so I'll give myself a tick for that one. He's a look. He's a good player. I still think I still think the Dockers are an, an A grade as short, but we'll see. That's yeah. the beauty of it. We don't know. We certainly will. And they've got a great clash this week against the Cats down at the Cattery. Um, that's a bit of a litmus test as well. Yeah, it is. Um, I don't know. Geelong's been a little inconsistent, as we know. Um, mm. Frio has been ultra consistent, really. I mean, The defence been... has been good. And we the talked defense, about yeah. Geelong's attack and, and, and the Twin Towers up there. Yeah, they're good everywhere, Frio. And I think now that Darcy's starting to build back into his, his form again, it'd be nice if Fife was back. Like, I mean... Of course, you'd want you'd want your star player um, playing as many games as you can. But um, oh, we'll see. We'll see how we go. They're, they're they're performing well. Everyone's we talk about it a lot, and and a lot of the time, teams that do go on and win a flag. And I'm certainly not saying that they are going to do that. But look at every every team that wins a flag. You know, Melbourne last year, and we pick out some players in their team that would just be no one ever heard of at the start of the year, and they kind of become names at the end, like your Bowies and James Jordans and. Um, you know, Spargos and all these guys. And it's just like they're players that become, and they're like, oh, he just does a role. He just does a role. And that's what Frio has got really well. You've got a lot of players that play their role perfectly. Mm, absolutely. Hey, we've been taken uh, by X scores, uh, expected scores a lot this, this year. We've been really interested in those. Uh, we've been talking about how ex- expected score, it's kind of like what you're expected to score from a certain point under a certain amount of pressure. Uh, and, and how clubs sort of you know go above or beyond the mean and, and whether they're kicking more accurately than expected or kicking less accurately uh, than expected. And we've got some more interesting nuggets this week, Christian. There are a couple of teams that were ultra accurate, like the Pies on Anzac Day, and there were teams like Melbourne that we were just speaking about who, who really struggled but still got the win. And we'll kind of get into that a little bit later, but some interesting X-score uh, little bits and pieces from the weekend. Yep, so those those two are the two. So Collingwood, um, as you said, they were expected to score 56 points from their shot, the quality of shots they had. They actually scored 93, so 37, 37 points above the expected score. That's the highest differential in a game this year or the best differential in a game this year for any team. Um, Where were the and, Bombers in that? So they well, were... Essendon weren't too bad. I mean, Essendon were plus 10.4 for their expected score, so the fourth highest uh, for the round. Yeah. Um, and again, but they were expected to get the win. So it was it was the only result uh, they got flipped based on expected scores this week was Collingwood took the four points uh, hang on. based on where the shots came from. Essendon would have got it. Well, you look at the Ds as well and, and, and you talk about results being flipped. And so you're saying that given what Richmond you know, could have scored, how did they go compared to the Ds? Because you feel like if Richmond had taken their chances, they probably should have beaten a Melbourne team that had scored, you know, 418 at one point. Did they have enough chances? Correct. I think, and again, I think that was my big takeaway from that game was it was an absolute smashing and it could have, you know, could have been worse, clearly. Um, So Melbourne expected to score 102 points in the game, scored 76. So dropped, you know, left 26 points um, due to, you know, bad accuracy, which was the biggest loss of any team or the biggest loss of any team so far this season on the scoreboard. But Richmond, I mean, they were expected to score 49 points. Is that um, it? Which is 20, oh, sorry, West Coast were down at 47. But, you know, most clubs are expected to score at least 60, 70 points in a game. Even from their, the shots they were getting, they were expected to score 49 um, and scored 54. So they were plus five. Uh, but even looking at expected scores, as I said, Richmond were expected to score 49. 
Melbourne was expected to score 102. So it could have been a 53-point margin. It was a 22-point margin. So, again, it, it sort of masks just how how dominant Melbourne were across that game. I think there was a period, in, I think it might have been the second quarter, where the ball, forget the Tigers getting it inside 50, they couldn't get it past halfway for about 12 minutes. It was a complete domination. And then you look at the score at three-quarter time and you're like, they, they can still win. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was, it was almost, uh, it's strange because you look at teams like like Richmond and, and what we've come to expect from them and you think with a bit of a sniff, they might be able to overrun. Team. But you're right. It was just such a a domination from the D's possession, the whole lot. It, just, it was the only thing that was missing was accuracy on the scoreboard. Mm. And so I guess it kind of makes sense that it could have been looking at expected scores, you know, 60 50, yeah. 60 point result. And even that kind of looks a little bit conservative if, but if they'd nailed some of their shots. They were so they were so dominant that it was like, well, we don't even we don't even need to take our chances because we're just <laughs> gonna remain dominant in this contest. And, well, that, and that's how it really felt. They just there was no point where Richmond really looked like they were in any sort of control of that game. Yeah, and I, I was similar. I made the comment on the night. It never looked like, you know, I don't don't like talking in gears in footy because you don't have gears, but they never look like they got out of third gear if you want to want to put it in that context of Melbourne. They just they were just rolling through that game. And it wasn't that they were disinterested or anything, but they never had to sort of lift. They were just were in complete control from from yeah, the work go. Well, it got you thinking, Christian, about you know, teams that that do just score freely, and even if they are behinds, um, the sort of the the likelihood of a team winning a match with at least sort of 30 scoring shots, regardless of accuracy. And you kind of came across some interesting bits and pieces there. Yeah. So it was sort of a, it was, it was a bit of a rabbit hole uh, query. So, I mean, you just asked where the accuracy sort of rated um, for Melbourne across the game. They were so inaccurate. Um, so again, you know, we've seen teams kick one goal, 10 and one goal, four or something, you know, say so they, they were uh, less accurate than Melbourne. But the thing is, I went, I went to, okay, looking at a team that had at least 30 shots at goal. And I just wanted to look at the lowest accuracy from at least, you know, 30 shots at goal um, and an accuracy of under 30% with over 30 shots at goals happened 10 times since 2015. Um, so again, Melbourne was sort of the fifth worst accurate um, of any team to have had at least 30 shots of goal. So I think their accuracy was 27%. Um, and the lowest in that time is about 24 or 25%. So I was just looking at that, but I was thinking, well, they're really highly inaccurate games, but eight of the 10 games um, where the team had at least 30 shots but scored under 30% accuracy, they still won the game. So that was an 80% win record there. So I just thought, okay, how often does a team actually get 30 shots in a game? Um, and ran that query again, just picked 2016 onwards. And they came back with 520 times uh, or 520 games where teams had at least 30 shots at goal across a game. So I thought that was a higher number than I was expecting. I, you know, that's, um, you know, one in every five or six games. I think that works out to be mm. uh, in that time. So it was a lot more than I thought. And I just sort of started to look at, okay, how often do you win when you get 30 shots at goal? Um, taking out accuracy, whether, you, whether you're accurate or not. Um, sort of almost doesn't matter. It's a, it was a whopping win rate when I ran it. And of 500, as I said, 520, 520 games, 482 times that team has won the game. Uh, 38 losses and zero draws. So a 93% win record if you get to 30 shots at goal in a game. Again, with previous weeks on the pod, I think we spoke about first to 90 or getting a 40-point lead and a 30-point lead. Mm-hmm. And they're all around 
similar number, you know, 88, 85%, but this just seems like another big one to me. It's just almost like, well, it doesn't matter how accurate you got. Mm. If you can get 30 shots at goal, and yes, I know, Jake, you're going to have to kick at least some of them. You can't, you can't <laughs> kick one goal 29 and win, but you're just thinking if a team's going to get 30 shots at goal, they're dominating play down their end. They're, they're restricting the, the opposition's chances at, you know, getting the same amount of shots at their own goal. Um, but it just seems to be that safe number that, that that's what, uh, once a team reaches that number, they're not going to lose. What, what's uh, off the top of your head? What's the average winning score in the AFL over the last sort of, you know, 10 years would be like um, in the seventies. Yeah. It's, it's at 80. I haven't, I, ha- I haven't looked in the last 12 months actually, since probably um, early 2021, but it's always around. Yeah. Three or four points below like the comp average sometimes. Oh, sorry. Three or four points above the comp average. Yeah, so um, it would make sense that even if you're scoring, say you, you, you look at that 30% benchmark, 10, 20. That's, that's still 10 goals, obviously 60 plus 20 is 80. So that's above the benchmark already. Yeah, uh, that's, and a, then that, have, that's a good, that's a pretty good score and you're wildly inaccurate. Yeah, and even if you're missing a couple on the full or one, you know, just tri- dribbles out, you know, you, you mm. say you're 10, 17, it's still 77, which I, I'm suspecting would still be above that average as well. So it does kind of make sense that if you get enough opportunities, enough right, yeah. inside fifties, we can link it to other stats if you want to. Yeah, enough I, opportunity. I, yeah. Exactly, and I think that sort of then then sort of leads to the fact that if you're having thirty shots, then you are it sort of by nature you are kind of dominating the game because the balls you're you're going to have a lot more territory, and mm. it's I would imagine it's rare that two teams in the same game have thirty shots at goal. Yeah, well, you're thinking, yeah, absolutely. Well, not not unless you go back to kind of like the 70s or the exactly. 80s. Exactly, 150 to 100 freewheeling. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, that's good stuff. Uh, justified hype or hyperbole time, this segment where I'll say a statement, you guys tell me whether the hype has been justified or I'm talking in hyperbole. Christian, the Crows rebuild has worked. Uh, Big scalp on the weekend. It was, and and they had a few big scalps early last year. It's it's working. I can't say it's worked. I don't think they've reached where they've got to yet. So Thank again, um, you know, and can give you a few numbers of why. So I think the good part of the game, third for contested possessions this year. So getting their hands on the ball, again, small part of the game, but such an important part of the game. Last two years, they were sixteenth and eleventh for those two stats and in the negatives. Um, but again, big thing for me is they've nailed one part of the game. So forty-one points per game from stoppages, number one in the comp but 15th for points per game from intercepts. And we sort of talk about a lot of the premiership teams have based themselves on intercepts more than clearances. So there's another little sort of issue for them there that, yes, they're getting a lot of a lot of value from their stoppages, just need to get some more value from their uh, intercepts, which is more, more based on your general play setup and things like that. Um, so, again, one thing that makes Adelaide easy to watch, uh, 43% of their scores come from the back half, which is the highest percentage of any team. So... Almost half of their scores are coming from end-to-end transition play, which is great to watch. Problem for them is the opposition, 59% of the opposition scores are coming from the opposition's forward half, which mm. is that same zone where Adelaide's starting. So, again, they're 15 a 15th in forward half. Yeah, so the, the ball's living at the wrong end of the field at the moment. Um, but they're sort of, as I said, they're getting res- results on the scoreboard based on really good ball movement and pretty good defence. If they can tighten up and start to sort of control territory more and... Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, flick the gauge and sort of score more from turnovers, then you can say the real rebuilds worked. But yeah, it's definitely a promising sign so far. There you go, Crows fans. Uh, watch this space, uh, Jake. You're always big on these kind of midfielders and the awards. Darcy Parrish should have won the Anzac Day medal. <laughs> well, if we go on expected scores and we forget <laughs> and we we rubbish the actual score, then probably yes, because that means Essendon win. 
Oh, look, I don't think it's, it's certainly not outrageous that he didn't win. I mean, just possessions, disposals don't doesn't necessarily equate to great game. But I did think he played well. And I we, we've mentioned this on the podcast before. You know, I think going back to when Tom Mitchell had a couple of 50 disposal games where 50 appears to be that number that you get to where you, you're crushed, particularly if you don't win the game. I remember Hawthorne lost to the Giants and Mitchell had 50 a few years back. Nathan and, Buckley. And he was crushed for it. That's well, like, yeah, they, they played the pies and Nathan Buckley said he didn't notice his influence. Yeah, there was, there was, he's, he's, I think he's done it about three or four times and a couple of times against the pie. Yeah, and exactly that. And it's just like, it, it, it kind of felt the same. And, and the, the equivalent of that is probably 30 and a half where people were saying, well, he wasn't having, he wasn't having the impact. So what, what, what do you want him to do? Like he's getting his hands on the ball 30 times. He had, I think he had 13 clearances for the game. Um, and that included him sort of looked like he rolled his ankle or something towards the end of the game. Um, spend a little time on the bench, but oh no, I don't think so. I, I, in the history of the Anzac Day Bombers Collingwood clash, no no players ever won the medal from the losing side. So look, it's that's the way it goes. Had he got fifty, kicked two goals, and they lost by a point, it would have been interesting to see if, who who the medal went to. But look, I don't think it's outrageous. So no, uh, Christian, we saw two uh, games on on the Anzac Day that were. Kind of equally impressive in terms of raw numbers. We had Callum Mills pick up 37, kick a goal uh, for the Swans against the Hawks in a winning game. Uh, and we saw the, the Darcy Parish performance, obviously, as well. Can you kind of talk to us talk us through some of those stats and, and, and where the differences in these two games might lie? Because everyone was kind of lauding Mills, but was a bit hesitant to sort of say that Parish had a, had a great impact on the game. Yeah, and it was, it was sort of the two games are sort of ran my own compared to Again, champion data, we do all the numbers and people sort of say, well, numbers are overrated. But when they say that, they mean disposals, you know, disposals that are overrated. But I always like to say to them, well, they're all chasing the same footy. So if Darcy Parrish can get that ball 44 times and everyone else is only getting it 20, 25, he must be doing something. Exactly. So again, I want to preface everything I'm saying by saying I'm not devaluing Parrish's game. To get the ball 44 times, um, you know, it means being pretty dominant at, at doing what he's supposed to be doing. But again, Callum Mills, we saw... Get 214 ranking points um, against the Haw- against yeah, the Hawks earlier that day, which is the fourth most ranking points in a game um, across the last seven or so years. So again, I just took those two games and compared it. So Mills had 37 disposals, Parrish had 44. Um, if you talk about effective meters gained from those disposals, that's where you can really see why Mills got so much value from you know given to himself. He had 674 effective meters gained. Um, against the Hawks, which was number one of all players for the round. When you compare well, a that, to- surprise. We talk about how hard it is to get to a thousand meters gained overall. Yeah, and he's he's gotten two thirds of the way there with effective meters gained. Correct, and that's you know, and that's playing sort of in the inside midfield. So that's seventeen contested possessions. It's not a lot of. It, it's quite easy to get meters gained if you're playing back pocket and halfback flank, and you've got hundred meters, hundred fifty meters mm. in front of you each time. Um, yeah, midfielders to get up over about 550 means they've had a pretty good game to be over 670s, obviously an awesome game. So again, looking at Darcy Parrish though, and that's probably where a lot of his, his, he loses a lot of his value. He only, his personal disposals only effectively gained 130 metres, which was ranked 231st for the round. So you talk about- I would push back on that though, because I do think people look at that number and, and think- and whether it's meters gained or effective meters gained, I think people look at that and just say, oh, well, he's had 40 touches and he's only had 200 meters gained. But w- the number I like to look at is assisted meters gained. And and because if you're on your hands and knees firing a hand pass out to someone in space who can then 
that's just as valuable. Yep. So again, so that's where Par- Darcy Parish was extremely valuable um, against the Pies. He had 539 assisted meters gained, which was the fourth most for the round. So again, I think you know Darcy Parish was the number one ranked player in that game, um, quite high for the round. So he's had a, he's had an overall he's had a good game. So 12 clearances um, and 539 assisted meters gained. But again. Callum Mills has trumped him even in that. Callum Mills, with his 674 effective metres gain himself, he also assisted 580 more metres to his teammates, which was number one for the round. So to see a player rank number one effective metres gain from their own disposals and number one for assisted metres gain, pretty rare, um, can just thought. show you why, why Callum Mills' game was ranked so highly in, you know, in terms, as I said, it was the, it was the fourth best game played by anyone um, going back to the last seven or eight years. And the guys yeah. above him were... You know, Jack Rewalt kicking 10. I think Goldstein <laughs> kicked six and had about 20 hitouts to advantage. And I think Dangerfield had 30 and five in one of his games for 229 ranking points. So, yeah, Parrish was Parish was good. Mills was awesome. It, it was a good round for, for big games. I thought... Um... I thought Clayton Oliver was awesome on mm. um, against against the Tigers. What he was doing was that he played a fantastic game. And then Patrick Cripps, you know, three goals and 30 and just the amount of contested ball he was winning clearances. So it was a good round for dominant performances. Certainly was. Uh, last one before we wrap things up. Are we back on port after they won and they beat the Eagles? The Eagles... Yeah, the the um the flag fancied eagles. No, it's, I'm not back on port, but I was never off port. I don't I don't think I was ever like saying port are done. We all thought some of us here tip port to go all the way this year. I, I I don't think port were as bad as what their record suggested, and I still don't. Um, do I think they're gonna? Do I still think they can win the flag? Probably not, but that's probably because they're not going to be top four. And I really think you have to be top four to be genuine to win it. But I still think they're in the hunt for the for the lower end of the ladder, for for the lower end of the top eight. Fair I really enough. do. I think they can turn this. I think they can turn their season around. But I wouldn't be looking at West Coast to say, "Gee, what a great win." West Coast are. I mean, if if we were happy, if for some people are talking about North Melbourne getting a priority pick, West Coast are worse than North Melbourne right now. Yeah, I mean, obviously, a lot of extenuating factors. They've had uh, a lot of injuries. I mean, all teams have injuries, but they've been ravaged by COVID as well. Um, coaches out like that. It, it's it's been a pretty stiff start to the season for this side that we all thought would probably slip this season. It's just been exacerbated by a few few extenuating. Yeah, but yeah, there were a couple of rounds where they had absolutely nobody, and you give them a bit of a pass there, and then they've started to add players back in, and then it's like they're still really bad. So what's <laughs> going on? Um, yeah, yeah, I think maybe there's... we can do a deep dive on, on the Eagles next week and have a look at kind of what their yeah. biggest issue might be. Push yeah, I don't know where that. to start. Um, <laughs> could be a long deep dive. <laughs> that could be going very deep. <laughs> very good. Hey, footy tips. Make sure you get your tips in ahead of this week. Uh, Friday night games now, so you're not going to get uh, pinged if you forget the Thursday night game, Jake. Do, do we do we like the fact that we've gone back to Fridays? I think we get some more Thursdays later in the year. Is that right? I'm ambivalent. I, I'm not fussed either way, to be fair. Yeah, I, I like the Thursday. It feels like you get, it feels like you get more games when they're spread out over a long, uh, over the four days as opposed to three. Yeah, I don't, but, I don't, I don't miss it Thursday night, but I'll do notice it Saturday when there's a big glut of five and six. I mean, five Saturday. games is too many. I find. Yeah, yeah. it's hard. It's, it's kind of too jungle. hard to watch more. Not enough screens. Uh, fair enough. Uh, but you can join us on Footy Tips. Uh, footytips.com.au forward slash. Are you still on pod. top of the table? <laughs> no, I've slipped. Oh. I tried to um. 
I tried to I tried to do a few uh, left field tips to try and get a bigger bigger head start on the rest of the group and and failed pretty miserably. So I think I'm back uh, down like sixth or something. Okay, st- that's all right. Still, yeah, I'm still above both of you. So you're, the, you're in like the you're in the Charlie Kerno spot on the on the Coleman. Yeah, you, you're, 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 you're not out of it. No, I'm not out of it. No, no, not by any chance. My margin's not great, but I need to call back some actual tips. I think. Uh, thanks, team. Uh, we'll speak to you all in the next one. Listen to all the latest episodes by subscribing to the ESPN Footy Pod wherever you get your podcasts.